And so I'm going to lead you, and would you repeat after me? For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Lord, this morning we bless you. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave your life as a ransom for our sin, Lord. We thank you for this past year, all the ways that you've led us, Lord, and protected us and shown your faithfulness to us because you're good. And Lord, we just thank you that as we're headed into a new, new year here, Lord, we just want to give it to you. We want to commit it to you and pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts and in our lives and in our church, God, because uh, we trust you. We trust you, Lord. And what a wonderful thing that is, uh, uh, the hope that we have as Christians to trust Jesus. And Lord, we're thankful for your word because your word is eternal. Your word is unchanging. And it declares the message of the gospel to us. It presents to us and reveals to us the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would know about the Father and his kingdom and the th ways that you're at work, Lord. And so we just thank you, Jesus, that you're our Savior. We pray, Lord, as we turn to the word of God this morning that you would give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you, Lord. Pray, God, just for the gift of teaching, for the spirit of prophecy, we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be turned towards Christ this morning. And so, God, we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Okay, so, got your Bibles. You can turn with me. Oh, where are we going first? I forgot now. <laughs> What's that text I got on there? First Timothy. First Timothy. Um, often in the new year, maybe you haven't been around here in the new year before, I... Uh, Kind of around Christmas season, that time of year, we pause on the teaching series that we're in. We've been in, of course, Second Samuel. So we spent a couple, couple Sundays looking at um, the Christmas story. And then often in the new year, I'm like, I just like to touch down on things that are kind of burning in my heart and things that I've been thinking about. And so I thought we'd do that this morning. And um, I've been, like all of us, with a new year change Reflect. Is the heat? Is it okay that the heat's on, or do we want the fans off in here? Want them off? Okay, I got the off. Can we can we flick that one right there? Because it's kind of noisy in here. It's just that it was so cold this morning. <laughs> so you know, uh, yeah, like all of us, feeling reflective over the past year. In fact, I kind of you kind of want to put the last two years together, don't you? Twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, and. Um, Think about all of the goings on in the world and everything that's been happening. And obviously, as a, as a pastor, you know, I want to have my finger on the spiritual pulse of what God's doing, saying, Lord, what are you, what are you doing in the world? What are you seeking to do in our church? What are, what are you asking of us? What, what is your heart for the church locally? And certainly two years of, of uh, COVID attached to our lives, it's changed the church. Have you noticed that? <laughs> It's transformed the church. And uh, it's not the same, you know? And I would say this, it's like, it's not all bad. Hey, you're going to listen to the ramblings of the madman this morning, okay? No, no, not quite like that. But I just, I just wanted to share my heart and things that I've been thinking about. And uh, yeah, maybe the Lord spared people by keeping them home this morning. I don't know. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think about the church and how it's changed. And it's like, not everything is bad, and not everything is good about it. You know, on the good, I think, wow, you know, the gospel has gone forth via online platforms 
in, in ways that we could have only dreamed about prior to two years ago. And that's awesome. The gospel reach has exponentially exploded. On the bad, I think about the physical gathering of the church. It's totally transformed. You know, over the holidays, we spent some time with uh, Pastor Fred and, and we were yapping about our, our churches and what's going on in, in his community. And what I found is that every time I speak to a, a pastor, whatever community they're in, they tell me the same story. That, that their church has totally changed, that people have disappeared, people have appeared, they don't know where some are, they, there's new folks, and, and it's not a statement of condemnation. As I say that, it's not a statement, that's just a statement of fact, okay? So that's not like condemnation for anyone, wherever you're at. Uh, I also find this, that I, that I hear lots of weariness from church leaders, and uh, churches are wrestling through issues of uh, character, leadership, reputation. So often I hear this, this concern that is primarily directed towards how the community will respond to the actions of the church. And it seems to me that, that concern for reputation drives a lot of decisions rather than making decisions on character. And, and I feel like the Lord, like I mentioned this to, to the church before, I, I feel like the the Lord for a while has been asking me this question and been leading me to this spot where he's saying, you can make decisions on the basis of reputation or you can make them on the basis of character. Now, which are you going to do? And, and as I thought about that, I've, like, I've come to realize that if I, make it on the, if I make decisions, if the church makes decisions on the basis of reputation, then often you're operating in the fear of man rather than the fear of God. And fearing God involves decisions of character, like some young boys that we read about in the scripture that were thrown into a fiery furnace. <laughs> they made decisions of character. And as I heard recently, sometimes um, faith will lead you into the fire and sometimes it will save you in the midst of the fire. And you know, often in life, I don't know, we all know this is true. It's like, how often in life do we know outcomes? So trust requires action and decisions of character and leaving outcomes into the hands of the Lord because he's worthy of trust. So, uh, so I've mentioned this before as well too. These are just some of the things that I feel like I've been learning over the last couple years that, that courage is not a switch that you flip. You don't just turn courage on one day but courage is a character that's developed little by little and decision by decision. And um, thinking about the last couple years, I, I, uh, the backdrop of, of COVID and the church, I have to say that for a long time, I thought that the church was, trying, as I'm trying to have my pulse on things, I thought the church was primarily maybe fighting not against a pandemic, but against worldly powers or spiritual authorities. I never really believed that this was a battle about rights. <laughs> I have to just say that because I think as followers of Christ, we're called to lay down our rights. So don't get me wrong. I think rights are very important. I think that they're very important. But if that is the message that comes across from the church, then we lose the ear of those whom we are trying to win. And so at times I thought, well, maybe we're fighting against government, against restrictions, against the rise of totalitarianism. Uh, 
Maybe we're fighting against division in society between the jobbed and the non-jobbed. But I've personally come to believe that all of those things that I've just mentioned are actually surface issues. And that when the curtain is drawn back and we, we pull back the veil and we dig, what we discover this is that from the inception of all that began two years ago for the church, it was essentially a struggle of the church against itself for itself. This is a struggle for the church against itself for itself, a struggle to recover and to be faithful to the confession of faith and a struggle to remain faithful to preaching and declaring the kingdom of God and the actions of the church. And we are living through a setting, an environment for the church to recover its identity. Amen? And it's happening against the backdrop of a pandemic. And God has been sifting. And God has been purifying. And God has been clarifying and preparing his church so that his church would remain faithful. And all that got me thinking about the nature of the church. The nature of the church, meaning what are the basic, inherent features of the church? What is the nature of God's church? So that's the direction I want to go this morning, okay? To talk about the nature of the church, because now is not the season for the church to shrink back. But to grow in clarity, to grow in conviction, to grow in commitment, to grow in courage, to grow in its call and its purpose before God. And so what is the church? So I said First Timothy, but I'm actually going to take you to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to start there and we'll move around the scripture a little bit. Asking this question, what is the nature of the church? The first time that the church is ever mentioned in Scripture happens in Matthew chapter 16. It was in a a private conversation, not a public teaching. It was a private conversation between Jesus and the twelve. He had actually taken them and they had slipped away and he said, come away with me and let's get some rest from ministry and be away from the demands of the crowd. And Jesus had the twelve and when he was alone with them, he asked them this question. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And so the disciples repeated to Jesus different things that the crowds were saying about him. And then he turned to them and he asked them this question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered that famous scripture that we know so well. Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus said to Peter and to the twelve, he said this, Upon your confession of faith, Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. That is the first place in Scripture where the word church is ever seen. It's right there in that text. In Matthew chapter 16, you won't read the word church in the Old Testament 
It's not until we come to the New Testament and Jesus speaks this word for the first time to the 12. And and when we come to scripture, the first introduction of a word or a concept always sets the pattern for us every other time that we look to understand uh, what is being spoken of. So when we speak of the church, Jesus said this, it's built upon a confession and he's the one who will build it. Now, the word church in the original language is the word ecclesia. Can you say ecclesia? Yeah. Greek friends will correct us later today, but, you know, that's it. Ecclesia is just this word, okay? This is what it means. It means a gathering of people who assemble together and they make a profession. They gather together around a profession of faith, a confession of faith, And they believe it, and it unites them together. They're united together as a body around this confession. And church, this is our confession. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our confession is about Christ Jesus. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. That Christ Jesus is the head. We are his body. The ecclesia. The church is his congregation, the assembly, the gathering of those who hold together to a confession of faith in Christ. So the church is not this. The church is not a building. We know this, we forget this, but the church is not a building. The church is the people who most of the time meet in a building, but the building is not the church. We are the church, and together we confess Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of the living God. Like Paul, the creed to Timothy, we say there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, that man, Christ Jesus. So the church is a people who's called out of this world to gather together to make a confession regarding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at times... Over the millennia, the church has been disorganized. At times, the church has become institutionalized. When the church is disorganized, that's not a good thing because it means that you're out of order. Things aren't set in order. It's like the urinal in our men's bathroom. (laughs) The ladies don't know this, but it's been out of order for a long time, okay? It's disorder. It's disorder. That's not a good thing to be disorganized as a church. When something is out of order, it means this. It can't, it can't fulfill its intended purpose. And Christ has a purpose for his church. And disorder leads to us being unable to fulfill God's intended purpose for us. At times, the church has become institutionalized. And when that happens, it's nothing more than a religious organization All the structures that are in place, well, they're all in place, but life is missing. That's what I think of when I think about an institutionalized church. The the people begin to serve the structures rather than Christ, which results in a slide into apathy where the institution only exists for the purpose of itself, and it loses touch with its intended purpose. So on one extreme, the church at times can slide into disorganization. On another, it can slide into institutionalization. But either is the fruit of the same root. The church has lost its sense of purpose. 
Now, outside the the gathering of God's people, outside the body of Christ, outside of those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, the Son of the living God, people who are not a part of the body of Christ are dividing. The culture is being splintered. Communities, families, I mean, probably happened in your family over the Christmas season. Society dividing on the basis of compliance or non-compliance to government-mandated policies and medical procedures. And churches are participating in that division. You know, yes, just yesterday I was having a conversation with someone and they, they, they told us about a Catholic friend who just said this, I wish all non-compliant people would just die. Division is the flavor of the day. Division is the flavor of the day to government mandates, but not, church, not in the church of Jesus Christ. We do not gather on the basis of compliance or non-compliance. We gather on the basis of a confession of faith. We boldly and unashamedly confess, Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of the living God. And skin color doesn't matter to us. Cultural background doesn't matter to us. Language, ageism, sexism are non-issues in the church of Jesus Christ. If you're rich, you will not receive favoritism here. If you are poor, you will not be scoffed. If you are a meat eater or a vegetarian, guess what? I'll still eat your food. (laughs) Whether you're circumcised or not circumcised, I don't want to (laughs) know. Compliant to mandates is not our confession. Jesus Christ is our confession. And for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he called us to gather in his name and to worship him. And the truth is, is that outside of Jesus, there is no safety. None doesn't matter what actions you take to preserve your life. If you are outside of Christ Jesus, you will die and you will face an eternity forever separated from his presence in hell. And that's a tragic, awful thing. But if you will confess Christ Jesus as Lord, then he promises you this. He will give you the free gift of eternal life and he will set you free from the power of sin and death. If you confess Christ, and I I would just say this, if you confess Christ and yet are gripped with fear in the current environment, you know, I would encourage you to take a hard look in the mirror. If you're saved and you're living for carnal things, fear will grip your life. And fear always reveals our idols, church. Fear always reveals our idols. And we're to follow our fears to our idols and repent. Because the word of God says this, that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. The word of God says this, that perfect love drives out fear. In salvation, it can't be earned. It is the unmerited gift of God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word of God says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. So the church, the ecclesia, is a people called out of this world by Christ Jesus 
who make their confession and they gather together. They come together to worship his name. The book of Acts, turn with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts demonstrates for us the actions of the church when the people of God gathered in profession of Jesus' name. Acts chapter 2. Let's go there. It says this in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together with them and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. When I read that, we know this about this text. There are four prominent activities described by the early church, described with regards to the gathering of the early church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is the word of God. Devoted to the teaching of Scripture. They were devoted to fellowship. They, they were devoted to the gathering together of the body of Christ around Jesus Christ, the fellowship with one another. Koinonia, they were devoted to the breaking of bread, eating together and celebrating at the table of the Lord. They were devoted to prayer, to seeking God, asking Him to order things on earth as they are in heaven. To me, devotion is the verb that is used to describe every one of their actions. They were loyal to these things. Loyal to the apostles' teaching. Loyal to the fellowship. Loyal to the breaking of bread. Loyal to the place of prayer. This is the pattern that's set for us. This is the early church. This is what we want to be. And Paul wrote to Timothy. Now turn with me to the book of Timothy. 1 Timothy. Paul wrote to Timothy... And Tim, he wrote this letter to Timothy about how to put the church in order. That's what the book of Timothy is about. Check it out. I'm going to read it to you actually from the New King James because I like it slightly better than how the ESV says. But it says this in 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of and ground of the truth. I'm like, wow! That's what the church is? The pillar and ground of truth? Other translations say the foundation of the truth. But look what Paul says about the church. It is the gathering of the living God. <laughs> We're the gathering of the living God. Is that not incredible? When the people of God gather, look it, it ain't because I set the schedule. It's not because we said, well, church 9.30 on a Sunday morning is a good time. I never gathered us. The elders of the church never gathered us. I would never be so arrogant to think that authority is mine. Jesus Christ is the one who gathers his church. And we are the church of the living God. You know, we say my church or we say your church but the church is neither mine and it's not yours. We are solely Jesus' church, his church, solely his possession. Think about that. 
It means that in reality, by no means does the church create or organize or preserve itself. It is exclusively the action of him who saved us by his glorious grace. The church belongs to him. Jesus didn't say, guys, you will build my church. He said, I will. I will. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Jesus is the master builder. Jesus is the architect. He has made himself the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is the foundation stone or the setting stone. It's the first one that's set in place in construction. All other stones are set in reference to this stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. And that's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter. He says this, we're like living stones being built into Jesus, a house for God. That means the church is not some nebulous online community. It is the congregation and the assembly of the living God. And thankfully, you know, I'm really thankful. I'm really thankful. Please don't get me wrong. I am very thankful that online participation can and has provided a stopgap. It's provided an outreach, but look at that's all it is. Stopgap and outreach. It's not meant to be permanent. And Paul said to Timothy, the church, Timothy, is the pillar and the foundation of truth, the ground of truth. Jesus said this about himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said to Pilate, whoever hears my voice, hears the voice of truth. And because the church is his, and he is its message, the church is the pillar and foundation of truth. And so we preach Christ, Christ crucified. The nature of the church is not defined by anything but the word of God. The word of God defines for us the nature of the church. So we would say this, as members of the church, we're not better than anyone. That's not our message. Our message is not, I'm better than you. Our message is Christ. Our message is Jesus. And the church is for all who would gather in his name. Salvation is based on his mercy. But who are we? We're just weak people who depend on his strength. Christ is our strength. That's why Paul said this, and why God's word instructs, I will boast in my weakness. I will boast in my weakness that Christ may demonstrate his strength in my weakness. His grace is sufficient. His power is magnified in human weakness. The church is the pillar and foundation of truth because we preach Christ, him crucified, him as risen savior. So, so what's the church? What is the nature of the church? Let me just say this to you again, the ecclesia. The church is those called out of this world into fellowship together with the living God on the basis of a confession of faith. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. We gather with Christ as our architect and cornerstone. We gather around devotion to the apostles' teaching, around devotion to fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. 
Now some, the world, looks at the church and says, what's the church? What is that? They get mad about different things. Well, they get tax breaks with regards to their building. Like, it's like, or, you know, some think the church exists for material help. Some think that the church is outdated and something from the past. Others see the church as a means to support their political struggles, or they see it as an arm of the state to communicate its will. Well, here's what Jesus said. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said this to his followers. You are salt and light. Now the church cannot satisfy the demands of this world because our task is to be salt and light. I mean, I, I got to tell you, yesterday I made a turkey sandwich for lunch. And it was awesome. Sourdough, butter, <laughs> Havarti cheese, thinly sliced red onion, <laughs> spinach, mayo, of course, cranberry sauce, and then salt and pepper on it all. And Lisa was in the kitchen while I was making my sandwich, and she said, I'd like a bite of that. I said, not on your life. No, <laughs> I, I, sh I gave my wife a bite of the sandwich. But I said to her, I did say this. I said, do you know what makes a good turkey sandwich? She said, yes, I know. It's the cranberry sauce. And I said, yeah, cranberry sauce is a must. But it's not the key to a good sandwich, a good turkey sandwich. A good turkey sandwich depends on the salt. On a turkey sandwich, salt does this. It sharpens all of the flavors of the turkey. It enhances all of the flavors, and it makes the variety of flavor pop when you sink your teeth into one of those. And see, listen, the church is salt. The task of the church is to sharpen the conscience. The task of the church is to sharpen human conscience. The human conscience, we know this, is dulled by what? It is dulled by sin. It is dulled by participation in sin. And the church does this. The church sharpens the conscience to the reality of King Jesus and his kingdom and his glory. We do so by the power of the Holy Spirit. We sharpen the conscience. Gospel of John says this, that the Spirit of God works to, to make apparent sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. That's the salty work of the church. The church is also light. We're to be light. Light causes darkness to flee. It allows the eyes to see. The ministry of light, I would say, is this, the proclamation of the gospel. So the task of the church is salt and light. It is to sharpen the conscience and to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ.
And we're called into existence by God's word. Christ Jesus is present in his church, his church. I'm not able to live for him the way I should. You're not able to. But we recognize this, that Christ's power is magnified in our weakness. He allows us to participate with him. And we sharpen the conscience of the world. We say, there is sin and there is righteousness and there is a judgment coming. And you need to know about the Savior, King Jesus. I read this great quote from Alan Redpath, you know, about this weakness that we have. We're not able to be what we want to be. He said this, don't try to be a good Christian. You already have the perfect living in you. You know, at times our hearts condemn us, but God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. And because the living Christ, the one who defeated death and the grave, the resurrected one is present in his church, Christ Jesus is our strength. That's why the word of God commands us to be courageous and not afraid. It's why the Lord said to Joshua, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. And the nature of the church is not defined by anything but the word of God. And so it means this, as salt and as light, the church has to be free to proclaim the word of God because the nature of the church is to sharpen the conscience and to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the church has an enemy. The enemy of Jesus, Satan. Satan is the enemy of the church because he is the enemy of Jesus and the enemy will do what he can, catch this, to dull the church. The church is to be sharpeners of the conscience. And Satan will do what he can to dull the effect of the church. And he will also do this. He will do what he can to silence the message of the gospel. The church is called to sharpen and proclaim. Satan's work is to dull and to silence. Peter said this, 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him. And be firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced throughout the world. Resist him, Peter said. Be firm in the faith. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And when we think about the church, the challenge when we consider the nature of the church is that at times, the church comes up against human rulers and human authorities. And so we wonder, what do we do when the nature of the church is in conflict with the structures of this world? When it's in conflict with authorities, when it's in conflict with governments, when it's in conflict with the state. Actually, I'm going to primarily use the word state because the word state refers to a nation or territory in its organization as an organized political community under one government. Canada is a state in this sense. 
And so for the sake of the discussion, state's a better term. That's going to make sense in a second. State is a better term than country or government because state encompasses both. It encompasses government. It encompasses country. It encompasses the people, the authorities. In Canada, for the church, it's like hard to have a discussion about church and state because we've never experienced struggles, really, between the church and the state. It's foreign to us. It's unknown to us. Because we're, we're a commonwealth nation. We, have, we were, you know, founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Those values are built into the structures of our law and our courts and our constitution and the history of our nation. And as Christians, we recognize this. We, Christians recognize this. We look around and we go, it's eroding. It's eroding. And what we do about that is a larger discussion, but we're being faced with wrestling through the church and, and the state being in increasing conflict with one another. Now, newsflash, I don't think that's going away. So we have to have these discussions. It's not a bad thing to wrestle through. It doesn't involve a pl- blanket answer. The church has had to wrestle through this countless times over the millennia. We, we've just gotten away with it for a lot of years in our nation. We've been very blessed. But, but that wrestling is healthy because here's what the wrestling does. Church, listen. It clarifies our purpose. Don't be discouraged about what is going on in our world, church. King Jesus is sitting on his throne. And he is clarifying the purpose of his people and his church. Remember, pull back the veil and get under the surface. This is a battle about the church for the church. And clarity on the nature of the church is important to this discussion because we we have to recognize that not knowing our purpose is destructive to our existence. Not knowing our, our, our purpose is battling against us. You know, I've just come to accept this. I'm going to say this right now. Our danger is not the government. Our danger is not any mandate that we face. The danger is that we would depart from the true nature of the church through vacillation and ignorance. Let me illustrate it this way. I, me, Matt. I am the greatest danger to the work of Christ in me. No one else puts my relationship in Jesus with greater peril and greater peril than I do. The decisions I make, the unseen thoughts and attitudes of my own heart, the self-sabotage, I am the greatest enemy in my life against the work of Jesus Christ. The same is true in the church. Christ is building his church. And the greatest danger is not outside. The greatest danger is inside. That we not partner with him in what he is doing. So when it comes to the church and government, the church and the state, understanding the nature of the state and God's design matters because the state is also a creation of God. The church is a creation of God and the nations belong to God. 
God has made the nations, the Bible tells us, to order human society. We have our preferences in terms of types of government. We happen to like how things are here in our Western democracy in North America. But I would say this, the Bible actually doesn't give clarity on types of government. All the Bible says is this, is that it is an awful thing to be ruled by tyrants. When godly government is in place, it is a blessing to the people of God. And when tyrants are in place, it is an awful thing. And God raises up one government and he takes down another. And they are called to do this according to the word of God. They are called, governments are called to bring order to society because we need order, because there's disorder because of sin. So government is used to bring society into order. Government restrains sin. Government, uh, its reign is to reign in unrighteousness and it's to punish the evildoer. That's what the word of God tells us. But it's a very terrible thing when a government begins to call good evil and evil good. And so because we believe God has raised up the government, I would say this, in the church, the government has its most loyal citizens. It doesn't always recognize that. It doesn't realize that the Christians, that followers of Jesus, believe in government and want to support authority. So when the government takes actions against the church, what it's actually doing is hurting, think about this, it's hurting its most loyal citizens. And that's true. It's hurting its best citizens, no matter what anyone wants to say, in condemnation against the church. Now, the Bible tells us that we're called to be obedient to rulers. But when rulers decide to make decisions to uh, the harm of the welfare of, of the state, and it hurts the church, then we have to decide. We go into this point of wrestling where we say, well, do I obey the state? Do I obey God rather than men? And obedience to, to rulers as we're instructed in the scriptures. This is important because this is being missed and confused in the church these days. Obedience to rulers is not a command to deify the state. The state is not God. Government is not God. God is over government. So when the state lays claim to purporting to be lord over the conscience of a human being... We reject that because the government is not God. We don't confess the government is Lord. That's not the nature of the church. Our confession is this. There is one God and one mediator between God and man. That man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So here's the thing. I, I told you I would use the word state purposely. Because the state is not just an expression that includes the rulers. It includes those who are ruled by those rulers. And when rulers take action against the conscience of men, and we vacillate, we participate. We vacillate, we participate. We cannot participate with any action of the government that would make it lord over the conscience of a human being. And in this sense, so here's, here's, here's what I want to say to us. I think this is important going forward. 
In this sense, honestly, I don't care what you do with the job. I don't. It's a red herring. Do you know what a red herring is? Do you know what a red herring is? A red herring is a herring that has been cured by the smoke. By smoke. So it's been smoked. So it changes color. That's why it gets its name red herring. And a red herring was used to train hounds. When, it, when, it, when a man was training his hounds, what he would do is he would, he'd be seeking to train the hound to stay on scent. And what this trainer would do is he would take a red herring and he would place it somewhere. And the idea of the red herring was to get the hound off the scent. To get the hound off the scent. And the hound, the hound had to identify, is this a distraction or is this the master's task? And for the church to job or not, red herring. Do not divide on such an issue, church. It's a red herring. Whatever you do, look it. Absolutely be informed. Do your research. Before God and the freedom of your conscience, make a decision. Do whatever you want to do. The Lord has set you free, and he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But when the government says you have to, red herring, flags, when the government says that you have to exclude people from the church because of a medical choice, like is happening in Quebec this morning, like has happened in, in the Yukon, I don't know if it's currently happening, like our BC government asked faith leaders to do. Did you know that? Did you know that they asked the faith leaders to do that? They asked us to separate the churches on the basis of vax and non-vax. In a, in a call between government officials and church leaders, faith leaders, the faith leaders said, we won't do it. God bless them. And the government backed down. Otherwise, we already would have had that mandate in place. We have an obligation, I would say, to disobey and to hold to the nature of the church in our ministry as salt and light. And if it brings trouble for the people of God, then it brings trouble. We cannot confuse the nature of the church. The church exalts Jesus. The church confesses Jesus. The church is devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. The church sharpens the conscience of the nation and the community and the peoples around us. We proclaim the gospel. And so it's important that we do not attack people on the basis of their choice in either direction. Don't defend yourself, Christian brothers and sisters, on the basis of your rights. Little children, let us love one another. We owe the world the gospel we owe the world Jesus, and we owe obedience to the authorities unless they ask us to act in opposition to the word of God. And we've functioned, you know, with temporary measures, but only temporary, because I'll tell you what, one day the state will be gone and the church will exist. And so the state needs us to do this. The authorities, the governments, the leaders 
They need us to pray. They need us to pray. We have a week of prayer here this week. You know, I think it's easy in my mind and my eyes to see the state as my enemy. I'll tell you this, the state is not God's enemy. It's his servant, whether they recognize it or not. And God is not the enemy of my enemies. I was the enemy of God, and God sent his son, Jesus, who died for me while I was yet his enemy. God is not the enemy of people. He is the Savior. Thus, when the church and the state come into conflict, God is using that struggle to help the church clarify its confession. He is helping the church grow in its courage. He is training. Listen to this. Oh, I like this. He's training his hound. (laughs) He's training his hound. Therefore, it's right. We have to wrestle through these things. It's not wrong to wrestle through these things. It's not wrong as Christians to land with different perspectives and viewpoints on these things. These are issues of calling and obedience. And God has given, his word says, he has given to authorities, to the state, to the government, the sword. And he's given to his church the sword. We proclaim Christ. We say this. This is our message. Be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. wonder what 2022 has in store, don't you? Whatever it is, it's going to be good because our God is good. And his word says this. My grace is sufficient for you. This is what I want to speak over you as a church this morning. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Praise the Lord that he's brought us into his church. Amen.